I think we're in the midst of what we would call a revolution in military affairs when it comes to this technology. You're seeing ISR and weapons delivery in those category one through three drones. There is no rear area. So if you talk about critical infrastructure in a conflict zone, there is going to have to be this defense or these layered defense that the entire ecosystem and environment is going to have to take into account. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Rachel Melling. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the evolution of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. Follow us on social media at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today, we're talking with Colonel Retired Bill Edwards. Bill is the president of Federal and Public Safety at Building Intelligence Incorporated and was previously the director of intelligence for the Special Operations Command North. We talk with Bill today about the ongoing threat from small UAS, what he's seeing in current and recent conflicts, and how the Army and the nation should respond. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Bill, welcome to the show. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. I've always wanted to be on the on the Mad Scientist podcast. It's something that's been on my bucket list, I guess, for quite some time. Nice. Yep. So can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I'll do that. Hopefully I'll do the quick version here. Uh, so I spent 30 years in the Army, uh, retired as, uh, as the J-2 or the Director of Intelligence at a TSOC, a Theater Special Ops Command. Before that, commanded a uh, Army ground, ground Battalion in Iraq uh, from basically, I think we went in in our PDSS in 2009, and then we deployed for 10 and 11, 14-month deployment. Um, before that, did multiple jobs that are normal in an Army career, I would say. And I was also on OIF-1 uh, and had the experience of Abu Ghraib prison, which um, I wrote a book about in uh, 2021. So it's called Inside Abu Ghraib and our experiences there. After I retired in 2018, uh, I started working in the security consulting business, specifically focused on private sector security consulting and have have built uh, one business doing that. And now I'm currently leading a, a, a security software company as the president of its federal division that's based in Manhattan, New York, and and, and continue to work in the small, uh, uncrewed aerial system, evolving market space that's, uh, to me, is the technology that's, that's really sneaking up on society in some forms. And we'll get into it, I think, in this conversation. But the things that are taking place in Ukraine and have taken place in other conflict zones have a definite effect on private sector security. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, Bill, we're thrilled to have you on the show today. And we're going to talk exactly about those topics, about small uncrewed aerial systems. So you mentioned the, the work that you're doing in the private sector. And so we kind of want to ask you a few questions about that. How does your work support planning and procedure development process of adding that air domain to an overall comprehensive security program? That's a great lead in. Um, yeah, I, I've spent the last uh, several years 
focusing on this the evolution of the small drone platform. And so what I like to do is, and, and I and so the audience understands this, I, I, I will not talk about any category four or five drone platform in this conversation. I really focus on categories one, two, and three, because those are the small UAS platforms that continue to evolve and continue to change, I think, modern conflict. I, I think we're in the midst of what we would call a revolution in military affairs and RMA uh, when it comes to this technology. It's it's evolutionary in many respects because drone technology has been around for years and years and years, but revolutionary as it pertains to how it's changing modern conflict. So you can look at Ukraine and see what's happening there and we can go into details, but I've started to focus you know, my efforts from a private sector perspective on bringing awareness, education, training to private sector security professionals because the air domain needs to be part of comprehensive security program development, period. If we're not thinking about the air domain now, then we're not thinking clearly of how this technology has evolved. But I'm really, really focused on awareness, training, legislation, but also linking it to what has happened in what we're seeing on the modern battlefield. Um, and if you go back, I mean, we can clear it, we can, we can do this quickly, but Ukraine is really the, the biggest laboratory that we've seen taking place with small UAS platforms. And there are multiple hundreds of experiments taking place in this laboratory every day, simultaneously. The evolution of first person view, FPV, those types of things are really taking shape. But if you even go back to the Israeli-Hamas conflict in 2021, we started to see this. You can go back a little further to the second Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict, and we saw it starting to develop. But then if you even go to 2014, and you see where this Ukraine-Russian conflict on the border started, we can trace the evolution of this technology all the way back to my time as a commander in Iraq in 2010. And so there's a clear timeline on how this technology has started to develop and why it's important to talk about. Sir, you made yeah. some some great points. And I want to talk a little bit more about the proliferation of drones and kind of going into what we've seen now in the Russia-Ukraine conflict and other conflicts. Can you tell us a little bit more about the proliferation of drones and the convergence of commercial and military drones? Yeah, I mean, again, a great question. The Like I mentioned, it, what we're seeing in Ukraine, we haven't seen in con we haven't seen in any modern conflict. As a as a combat veteran, I wasn't facing the same uh, challenges and and problems that current commanders are facing with the evolution of this technology. We were in in 2010 as a battalion commander, we were starting to see our enemies develop the commercial platform for ISR capabilities for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance capabilities. We weren't seeing them really as a, a weapons delivery platform. But now what we're seeing is a complete conversion of both missions. You're seeing ISR and weapons delivery in those category one through three drones. So uh, and I probably should explain that. Category, you know, NATO classifies drones in five categories, five being your your large platforms like a predator or a global hawk or something of that of nature which we don't discuss here 
It's not, this is, you know, this is really about categories one, two, and three, your DJI products, your Autel products, your, you know, your products that are small uh, UASs that are on the market that you can buy on any, um, you know, website that you go to. And so these are the platforms that are being used in modern conflict now with significant effect. One of those is uh, the evolution of what's called first person view, which I mentioned earlier. First person view is a, is a technique of flying a small UAS with precision, with strike precision into a target. And this has, has been refined in Ukraine. What we saw in the Israeli Hamas conflict, what we saw in the, the second war in Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia, we saw loitering munitions start to come to the forefront where you start to see platforms that um, maybe have human on the loop or human in some cases, in some platforms, they claim to have human out of the loop capability, which your audience will probably understand what that means when it comes to a delivery mechanism. So the point of this conversation is, is that as we see this technology evolve, are we preparing properly? Are we setting this into our training models so that our force understands how the battlefield has actually changed. I want to talk a little bit more about these conflicts that you that you brought up, because we mentioned Russia, Ukraine, you mentioned how it's sort of a laboratory to test out some of these systems. And we saw that even going back to uh, Syria with Russia testing out some ground systems to see what their capabilities were, how they how they were when they were fielded. You brought up Nagorno-Karabakh with Azerbaijan and Armenia. So Looking at all these conflicts that are in recent memory here, they're, they're very close to, to the present right now, and obviously Russia-Ukraine is going on. What are you seeing there that might indicate how small UAS use will evolve into the future? It's only going to evolve. I mean, we're we're only scratching the surface right now. What what we've really seen is, is a gap that we have in an ability to, if we're talking from a military perspective, defend our maneuver forces from this type of technology. Now, if I apply it to private sector, I really get concerned about mass gathering events, public mass gathering events, you know, and, and the possibility of a nefarious act that cannot be stopped in the way we're currently organized under law, legislation, and counter UAS technologies. And what was interesting is, is I saw a quote today from a, from a very senior army officer uh, that was, uh, it came out today actually on LinkedIn, and it was it was a quote that centered around if I was a, this is his his quote if I was a commander now I would be more concerned about counter C five ISR than I would be about my own C five ISR which I thought was a pretty interesting uh, quote to come to come out today and I'm actually happy to see that because the counter part of this whole problem is where really where we need to start focusing. You talk a lot about the connection with the uses in military operations, but also the impacts that it might have on private sector and security. And I think with the the current conflicts we're seeing and the blurring of the lines between attacks on you know private infrastructure versus military targets. And I think that that's something that might evolve in the future and in future conflicts, the lines might be blurred even more. So can you talk a little bit about the impacts on private infrastructure and how that might impact military operations? You just opened a really great tactical question. Really, it's a 
if we think about this, um, it's not tactical. I think it's tactical, operational, and strategic. I think it's all the levels of war. Um, if you if you think of this um, technology and how and the effects that I want to go back first to the the question. Hopefully, I ans- answered the convergence co- question. U- Ukraine is showing the complete convergence of all five categories of UAS from one to five in those classifications that I described earlier. That convergence is taking place in Ukraine right now. In the previous conflicts, we were just seeing some testing going on. We were seeing some some of the ability to use this technology. There's a there's a, a great book out right now, I, and I haven't read it. I've heard it's great, but I, it's called, I think it's called Seven Seconds to Die or something of that effect. But it's about how this how this drone capability really shaped conflict in that second war in Armenia and in Azerbaijan. So I think, you know, this is this convergence. So going back to your convergence question, you know, this is really converged now in Ukraine and it's going to stay, it's only going to mature and develop as future conflicts take shape. So this is the, I think what we, we would consider maybe the beginning of that. Now, back to your question, your, your, this question, there is no rear area now when it comes to the question that you're asking. So if you talk about critical infrastructure in a conflict zone, there is going to have to be this defense or these layered defense that the entire ecosystem and environment is going to have to take into account the air domain and not from not simply from aircraft, but from drones. Right. And so. I mean, I guess that's always been the case, but protecting critical infrastructure is one of the things we're focused on in private sector. But as we start to see how this technology has evolved and what's happening and and the creativity that's being developed in Ukraine, I'll give you a great example or a couple examples, some, some data points. Now, this is a report in open source news. Ukraine is losing 10,000 platforms a month, 10,000 drones a month. That tells you the supply chain right there. That tells you what's in the supply chain. If you're losing 10,000, you, you must have a lot more than that. Um, the second thing is there's over 6,000 platforms being employed in Ukraine. So different types of platforms from every category of one through five, 6,000 different types. So you can see this is this, this laboratory, this testing environment we were talking about is taking shape. And so... Those are are pretty critical data points. And then if you look at the creativity, I think the Ukrainians were the first to exercise an FPV mission on target, where they hit a target and and executed the mission properly. It's incredible. One of the other things that I saw, uh, which I thought was really interesting, was some citizen in Kyiv thought of the idea to use expended Juul. Juul is like an e-cigarette, right? Uh, An e-cigarette battery expended batteries to take those out of trash cans and use them to to power the release mechanisms on small UAS platforms. So basically using the power that was remaining in that battery as a as a technology innovation or creativity to support a drone dropping something. I mean, this is the type of stuff that's happening. And and conflict and war is always the generator of innovation and creativity. It's always great to see the improvisation, the adaptation of innovation in in wartime. It's amazing to see some of those things. But I wanted to mention 
Uh, you brought up Seven Seconds to Die, and that's a book by John Antall, who we've had on this show previously and is a good friend of Mad Scientist, and he has been uh, kind of at the forefront of some of the evolutions in warfare that he's seen, especially he focuses on the Gorno-Karabakh, but, but in general as well. Yeah, I think he makes, uh, uh, thanks for reminding me, I didn't, didn't remember if it was it was his book, but um, I've heard a lot about it. Um, I think, you know, I think basically what he's doing too is he's trying to do what I'm doing, which is showing this this evolution of, over a time, basically a timeline of of how the small UAS platform or the 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 UAS platform itself is is really changing conflict. And if you think about it, if you're a senior leader in the in the military now, it's not only affecting the tactical level of warfare; it's affecting the operational level and the strategic level of warfare. This is one of those technologies again. And if you go back to the definition of an RMA. Is it a technology that's reshaping or changing conflict? Yes. The answer is yes. The other thing is, is there's a definition for what's called a military revolution, which is a technology that changes society. And this technology is going to change society in many ways, not only from a security and safety and emergency preparedness perspective, but also just from a positive perspective, think in terms of deliveries of goods and services, but maybe also medical supplies and other things. There's a lot of ways this technology can have a positive impact, but right now where we're focused or where we're where I'm focused is on how do we prepare ourselves for uh, what we're seeing is uh, readily available at anyone's click of a mouse. If you look at what's available on the commercial market to purchase, the capability from a, a sensor perspective, functionality, perspective of a small UAS on whatever website you 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 buy from is incredibly mature. And so knowing what we know about this technology and the evolution of this technology and what we've what we've seen how can the army integrate this knowledge into education, training, leader development? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is this is one of the things I wanted to talk about or address was, you know, th- this is something that every leader from the squad, from the section, from the squad, all the way up to the commanding generals. I mean, I need to take into account, there's a lot of things going on. You know, we've got the evolution of AI, we've got autonomous um, systems, we have the UAS systems that are developing AI and autonomy into them. So you're having this convergence of technologies taking shape. Um, You know, we get into the conversation of swarm technology. And when you talk about swarm technology, People confuse exactly what it is. If there's a lot of drones in the air, that's not a swarm. If there's a lot of drones in the air that are centrally controlled under a C2 framework, that's a swarm. And so because you're able to manipulate that that formation, we could call it, of drones in the air. But, I mean, this needs to be built into the training model. It needs to go into our... AIT system, it needs to go into our basic officer system, our advanced officer system, our uh, intermediate level training, our senior level schools, all through the PME, there needs to be some education and awareness on not not only, and and I'm going to say there needs to be education and awareness on the small UAS platform, category one through three, because most military members are pretty familiar with four and five. I mean, because that's we've we've been utilizing, employing, deploying those systems for years, for decades. But one through three is new. One through three. Now three, we may someone may argue with me that three has been used. 
I would say yes, the shadow platform's probably in that category three area, but one and two is very, very new to the formation. And, um, you know, and I was an armor officer at one point in my life for the first five years of my career, if I was an armor officer, I would want to understand how I can mitigate the risk to my platoon, if I was a platoon leader, how I can mitigate the risk to my platoon from this technology. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially because because of the way we're seeing these employed and by who these systems are being employed at this point. Um, because it's a technology like this or a capability like this, I should say, it's not exclusive to the larger nation states or the larger armies. And so that's the question I want to ask you here. What are you seeing or talk a little bit about how the affordability and the availability of this technology to small actors without large defense budgets can affect a, a conflict uh, or, or how we need to react to one? Absolutely. I mean, I think Ukraine's the best example. Some platforms they're using are $400. Some are $1,000. I mean, they're easily accessible and they're easily affordable, uh, especially by governments. But if you look at what Ukraine did in the very beginning of the conflict, the Minister of Defense went to the citizens and said, if you own a drone, get it in the fight. And I'm paraphrasing. But that was the first time I saw really a head of state say, hey, citizens, if you have a, a, a drone, let's get it in the fight. And in that case, they were looking for more ISR capability, right? But now they've, you know, they've both sides, both sides of this conflict have matured their capabilities. Um, so easily accessible, um, like I mentioned, 10,000 drones uh, lost per month. That's an average or a, a statistic. That's a lot. But if you think about also the idea of 3D printing, 3D printing is another mechanism of creating a drone platform, which has been done in Ukraine. It's a launch and forget platform at that point. You can produce it again from a 3D printer and it has the capability to carry a payload, um, et cetera. You know, we can get into this in the next few minutes, but talking about detection and monitoring capabilities and the difference between counter UAS capabilities or technologies, that's kind of, I think, the next thing, you know, that drives us in this conversation. But, you know, how do you detect and monitor? How do you visualize what's coming at you, right? Uh, and then how do you counter it? Those technologies are different. They are not, you know, they're not normally the same technology. And that's that's where this education um, needs to take place. So uh, people understand that these small platforms, they fly very fast, they fly low. You know, they're not always going to be picked up by radar. In Ukraine, we are seeing that these smaller platforms are fighting their way through electronic warfare. There are actually videos that are open source videos that are out there that show an FPV drone getting jammed, fighting its way through that jamming, and still hitting its target. That is significant. We've seen the convergence of this technology. We've seen how it's been employed. So how what what is a nation? What can we do uh, in response to that? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking, I mean, I think it's two questions. It's one is, what are we doing on the private sector side to protect society? And then two, what are we doing from a military perspective to create capability in the force um, create uh, confidence in the use of that capability and then give us the winning advantage. That's exactly what we want. We always want that advantage and that ability to win. And so from a private sector perspective, it's all about legislation. It's all about law. And we are very far behind in this country on how to legislate this technology, which it, it needs to happen because we're talking about 
protecting critical infrastructure. We're talking about protecting the public at mass gatherings. We're talking about all these different things that need to take place. So that's something that I do in a volunteer role. I go to Capitol Hill and I talk to our legislators about this topic. And I just got back from a trip to DC a couple of weeks ago where I met with probably 10 different staffs of key legislators that are in involved in this um, challenge we have. On the military side, I think what we're seeing is that the senior leaders completely understand what's happening. They completely understand what needs to take shape. Now it's just promulgating that training methodology, that training mindset, and then getting the equipment, the right equipment into the hands of the tactical formation, right? To, to actually execute the mission. Because I, I mean, I, I may date myself, but, and I know uh, the army is now, I think going back to, uh, we're fighting from the division level, but you know, the fight takes place for gay combat team and below. I mean, most of the time now, that's in my experience, but you know, I think that you know, as we change to this uh, major combat operations or MCO environment, this multi-domain operations MDO, and then now we have all domain operations that are starting. You know, that's already come out from the joint perspective. Um, all three of those levels, we need to inculcate this new technology, this evolving technology, into our basics of of training. And how we how we train, but how not only how we train, but how we train to um, detect, monitor, and visualize, and then also how do we train to counter that threat so that it, we have a, a some sort of protection around our tactical formation. We often hear that we're lagging behind when it comes to legislation, whether it's new technologies like uh, unmanned aerial systems, whether it's artificial intelligence. Um, you know, it, it's it's a slow moving process and generally reactionary, which is um, usually not good because it it means that if we're going to have legislation passed on something, it's in response to some kind of an incident. And hopefully we don't wait until an incident uh, occurs uh, when it comes to UAS, as you talked about, you know, large gatherings. Hopefully we're not waiting for something like that to happen before we move on this. That's always the biggest. I mean, I think it's always the biggest uh, concern or fear from a private sector security professional perspective. When I was in DC a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to our legislators about this, they're they're dialed. Most of them are really dialed in on it, and they they understand the importance. So I I and I think there's some initiatives on on the floor. Uh, there are some bills that are out there. Um, Senate Bill 1631 is really is really one that I think gets us a lot closer to what we need uh, from a legislative perspective. Um, and so as we work through it, you know, I think we're going to see some positive moves forward. But I will mention right now in society, in general society, we are functioning on a 2018 law. And everyone that understands technology knows that 2018 is like ancient times to 2023 because technology moves so fast. And since 2018, this technology has changed dramatically. Yeah. And that, well, that's good to hear that there is um, positive movement being made right now. I want to ask you this next question, sort of open-ended, take it wherever you want. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, tied to military, but I want, to, I want to know where you see small UAS technology evolving to in the next 10 years. You're going to see the convergence or the, it may not be the right word, but you're going to see AI and autonomy become really more mature. And it's out there now, we're scratching the surface on it, but there are capabilities built into small UAS, UAS platforms that can really make them undetectable at, at some in some cases if you're 
purely operating on uh, waypoints or you're you're doing something that that doesn't require the operator to have a, a direct RF signal connection to the to the platform. Um, and then you also get into these to these uh, capabilities like where the, the drones can sense each other in flight while the drone is is executing a mission or flying, it's actually knows where other drones are in its airspace. So that's where swarm technologies sort of start to develop and mature. But there's a great book out that came out in 2015 called Army of None. Um, and it was written by Paul Scher, I think his name is. I may get that wrong. But um, I like how he describes what we call human in the loop, human on the loop, and human out of the loop when it comes to technology. And he also talks about AI in that in, in the different levels of AI, where you have AI, AGI, ASI, you know, three different levels of AI. And we're really in the in the in the formative times of AI. We're not in the ASI, AGI uh, capabilities. And I'm sure you're both aware of, of what those are. But when you tie that all to the small UAS platform, it becomes very significant and it becomes I think even more dangerous than it is now. But then you get into the conversation about all domains of robotics, not only aerial, then we talk about aquatic where you have surface and subsurface, and then you also have terrestrial, right? So you have ground robots or, or drones, you have aquatic, the two categories there, and then you have aerial. This becomes a very, very hard problem for the future commander. Absolutely. And, and you're two for two with uh, book references. Paul was also a mad scientist veteran who we've not had on the podcast, but we've had at conferences before. Um, so two, two good names to bring up on this show. Oh, great. So those were the big questions we had for you. We, we want to transition to our rapid fire question. So we want to thank you for that great conversation. I mean, there's, there's a whole universe of, of conversations we could have about small UASs because it, it is... I don't want to say the hot topic because that sometimes has a negative connotation as if it's fleeting, but this is one of the biggest trends I think we're seeing in conflict right now that has the most importance. Um, so I want to thank you for that conversation and let's get to our rapid fire questions now. So the first one that we ask these to all our, our guests are always the same. What's a threat or a trend or a technology that keeps you up at night? Oh, that's easy. Small UAS. Well, I was going to say, that, right that, right after you told me there's potentially undetectable drones, I said, well, that's how I would answer this question. Well, again, and it go, let's just take it a bit further, but you know, consider the, the other domains I mentioned as well. You know, consider aerial, consider the aquatic domain, consider terrestrial. And when you talk about that and robotics... I think we get into a larger discussion about the future of, and this this is for another day, but the future of conflict from an ethical perspective, where you don't have humans in the loop at all. I don't know. You should probably bring uh, someone more more uh, capable of talking about that on the podcast, but that is frightening to me. Well, you're absolutely right. That's that's always the other side of these conversations is um, here here's the capability, but now what's the ethical side of it? And those are two conversations that we could have for hours and hours. Um, and we do try to do that um, at Mad Scientist when we can. So that's, you know, we've got our next episode lined up. So question number two, what's something about you that most people might not know that you're willing to share on air? Oh, wow. Um, let's come back to that one. I'll have to, have to think about that. Okay. All right. Take some time to think about that. Although the next question's not any easier. So what's your favorite movie and why? Oh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of... Well, I won't say it's a movie. There's two series that I, I've always I've enjoyed, Peaky Blinders 
is a is a series that I really enjoyed watching. And then um, I, I've always I, I can rewatch Band of Brothers over and over again. I, I really enjoy Band of Brothers movies. I haven't seen a movie in a long time, so um, we'll, we'll allow series. I, There's precedent on this show to allow series, so we can go with it. And, okay. and as soon as you said it was a series, Band of Brothers popped up in my head. That was just something I thought I thought fit. It's just timeless. You know, the Peaky Blinders uh, series is, has always been interesting to me because the linkage to this, I don't know if you know the series, but this this gang in England, they're all World War One veterans and they come back from that conflict and they all have severe PTSD and and they form this gang in I think it's in Birmingham. And then the series goes on, but it, it's it's fascinating to me. That's interesting. I knew of it, but I hadn't I hadn't watched it yet. But I didn't know that kind of interesting wrinkle to it. So that that's very interesting. Maybe I'll have to check that out now. Yeah. All right, let's go back. Do we have anything? Do we have any special talents? Uh, interesting stories from your history? You met a celebrity one time. I was a colonel at the time, and I was checking into my unit, which was a, a TSOC, a U.S. SOCOM unit, and the commander was a, a, a Navy admiral. And um, he was a SEAL. Obviously, it's a special ops unit. And I went into his office to interview and, and speak with him. And, and the first one of the first questions they asked, asked me was, what is your claim to fame? And um, I said, well, I don't think I have a claim to fame. And they said, good answer. So I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that. I don't think I have any claim to fame. Uh, I've had, you know, I tell people all the time, too, that I'm, I don't consider myself an expert in anything, but I just have a lot of experience. And I, I think that the term expert is really, really needed and special for certain people that are that are experts in in things. And I, I like to promulgate that I, you know, some of the things that I I've done in my life. One of them was, um, you know, I was with um, with Bob Walters, Major General, retired Bob Walters, in in two thousand and three, and also um, uh, I think it's Major General Joe Hartman. Now uh, the three of us, we were the command team with uh, Command Sergeant Major Brain. And we were sent to Abu Ghraib prison, which was a pretty significant event in our lives. And our mission there was was to fix it. So, you know, there was uh, the normally you get task and purpose in a mission statement uh, in the military. And, and in this case, we got, you know, fi fix Abu Ghraib. So um, that was, I think, a significant event in my life. That's why we Bob and I wrote the book about the experience. But we also brought in uh, our families into the book. So it's not purely a military book. It's a book where our families get to talk about being in Germany. We were a Germany-based unit um, and all the things they had to do, our children had to go through, our wives had to go through. Um, so the book is really well balanced between the military mission and then also um, what the family went through. So I think it's, it's pretty appropriate. Uh, but I guess in a roundabout way, I answered your question. I don't know. I think I did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I was going to say, well, if no claim to fame is good enough for your commander who's a Navy SEAL, then it's good enough for us. But being a published author and going into Abu Ghraib and, and, and being the you know part of the team to go and fix that situation, I think that's pretty interesting, something that I would uh, consider a, a, a win for our, our number two question on the rapid fire there. So I think that counts. That's a great. I love it. Thanks. So before we wrap up, um, we want to give uh, our audience a, an opportunity to get in contact with you. So do you have a website? Do you have a, a way that people can ask more questions or, or follow your work? Anything like that? So it's um, obviously www.phoenix6consulting.com, all lowercase, all one word, phoenix6consulting.com. Over the last 18 months, I really sat down and I thought about what's needed in the small UAS market from an educational perspective. So I built um, three 
courses. They're online courses. They're adult learning model. They are they come with certification uh, from ASIS International, which gives uh, continuing professional education credit, and they're certified by the VA for GI Bill reimbursement. They're three courses. They're on that website, phoenix6consulting.com. They go through this. The first course is, is a drone vulnerability and risk assessment template or foundational course on how do you plan and prepare for a drone event? That's the first course. The second course is called drone emergency response planning. And so it's about planning your emergency response to a drone event. And then the third course is counter UAS, detection, monitoring, and visualization and law. And so each course kind of builds on itself. You can take any of them in any order. I like to tell people to take the counter UAS and law course first, then take the, the drone vulnerability risk assessment course, and then the drone emergency response planning course in that order, because we could probably build it into another podcast, but drone detection and monitoring is very hard to do. It's a very hard mission. So if you're talking about we're going to detect a drone and then we're going to counter that drone, we're talking about very complex technological military operations, but also we can do it on the private sector. So those courses are built, by the way, by professional instructional designers. They weren't built by me. I built the content and then I hired instructional designers to get it into a model that makes sense for adults to learn how, how adults learn. And you go through it at the end, you have to take a certification exam. If you pass your exam, you get a certification certificate. And so it's all thoughtfully built to support not only our service members, but also private sector security professionals. That's good stuff. Uh, Bill Edwards, we want to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, this is a topic that I think we're only scratching the surface of because we could be here for hours and hours and hours talking about all facets of the the UAS problem, but the small UAS problem specifically. Uh, so we want to thank you for coming on The Convergence. Uh, we we want to thank you for having a passion about this topic and for coming and talking to the Army and helping us learn about it. Look, like I said in the beginning, I've always wanted to be on the Mad Scientist podcast. And so now I've I've checked that block. I'm really, I appreciate the, the discussion and the conversation. You ask great questions. You know, what I say all the time and, and I tell people, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm really active on LinkedIn. Uh, from a from a drone and security perspective, a lot I've published 81 articles over the last uh, four or five years, mostly on Forbes, mostly in ASIS International, uh, uh, Security Industry Association, all these different publications, Security Magazine. Um, so there's a lot of content I've put out there on on the drone um, technology that people can just go in and read. They're in my profile. They're in the publications. They're public. They're free. The question I often get from people that I'm helping with this is, where do I start, Bill? I mean, where do I start? I have no idea how to even get going on an air domain security program. And that's why I built those courses so that people can take it and learn on their own. And then they, they have a starting point as well. So thanks for having me. Uh, this is a really great conversation. I do podcasts quite a bit. This is super fun. Um, so thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Bill Edwards. You can keep up to date with all things MadSci by following us on social media at ArmyMadSci or visiting the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. 
This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.